from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 23rd. Today, how a protest in a North Carolina town in the 1980s birthed a national movement for environmental justice. So, Daryl, how did you first get interested in this story? While covering environmental issues, I learned about this big protest in North Carolina by people of color who aren't really involved in the mainstream movement. Daryl Fears is a reporter for The Washington Post. The people who have historically been the public face of the conservation movement are mostly white. But the people harmed by pollution are disproportionately black and brown. Starting in the late 70s and early 80s, communities of color begin fighting what's known as environmental racism. It's this form of discrimination that puts stuff like coal-fired power plants and toxic waste dumps in black and brown neighborhoods. For decades, black and brown people have sought to protect their neighborhoods, calling for environmental justice. And that movement started with a protest in North Carolina. And I learned about this figure at the center of this protest, Dolly Burwell. Dolly was born and raised in North Carolina to parents who were sharecroppers there, a deeply religious woman, raised to be religious, and pretty much raised to do right. My parents instilled in me that I had to be a voice for so many people who were not placed in the position that I had been privileged to be placed in. Dolly was a young mother in 1982. She had two daughters. At that time, I was working as a paralegal to an attorney and was very active in the SCLC, which is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that Dr. Martin Luther King founded in Atlanta when he was leading the civil rights movement. And I had been on the board for the Commission for Virtual Justice. And and I felt like it was so many people in the community who didn't have the, the resources that I had. Dolly lived in a small house in Warren County, which had the second highest black population of any county in the state of North Carolina. Warren County is very rural, but in Afton, where I lived, it was a neighborhood. For instance, if it snowed, which it did most winters, Mr. Davis knew that no one else had a snowplow, and so he pushed snow to everybody's neighborhood. And if you had a garden, you know, you could always count on vegetables from your neighbor's garden. And so what sent her onto the path of environmental justice? It was accidental. More than 30 years ago, along hundreds of miles of North Carolina roads, a local company illegally dumped oil laced with cancer-causing PCBs. The entire issue in Warren County in 1982 revolved around polychlorinated biphenyls. 
which are PCBs that were banned by the EPA in the late 1970s because if they are inhaled or absorbed through the skin in any way, they can cause cancer, they can uh, damage human organs. It is a nasty chemical that can make you sick very quickly. Once the state realized that PCBs were sprayed on the side of the road and they basically quickly discovered who had done that, the governor thought that we'll just treat this problem with some more chemicals and leave the dirt where it is. And the EPA said, no, you can't do that. And so the state looked at places to build a landfill for this dirt, 10,000 truckloads of dirt. And they looked at two sites. One was rejected and the other was Warren County. And this had become big news in North Carolina. There were usually a story just about every week or every other week about what was going to happen. And being a young mother, my oldest child was probably six or seven at the time, and thinking about my community, having to deal with hazardous and toxic waste that I didn't know a whole lot about. It was very scary and you just didn't, you didn't know what was gonna happen. So Dolly and her neighbors learned that their community was one of the sites being considered. Warren County didn't meet so many of the requirements. We knew that one of EPA's requirements was that a toxic and hazardous waste landfill had to be at least 50 feet above the groundwater table. I, I just figured because of the health risk, they would not submit to putting a hazardous waste facility in a place that didn't meet every one of their criteria. And then I realized that what the state was considering was not our health. I knew that the state was going to make a political decision based on race as to where to put that landfill. And when she learned that the landfill was coming to Warren County, she recalled a Bible verse that her parents had instilled in her. Uh, and she quotes it by heart still today. Uh, Michael 6. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. And to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. She said that her mother always made us believe that we were the hands, the eyes, and the feet of God on earth. And it wasn't enough to believe in justice. The scripture said, fight for it. So Dolly contacted everyone she knew. She got in touch with mostly women and said, they're going to poison us and this is where our children live. This, this landfill will be just a few feet 
from where our, where our groundwater table is, and we rely on that groundwater for drinking water and to wash dishes. And we can't have this here. I knew we had to fight against it. So Dolly got in touch with the United Church of Christ field leader in that area. She got in touch with the leader of the SCLC at the time. The only possible chance was to somehow connect the sighting of this dump in Warren County to a violation of our civil rights. The way of civil disobedience was the only chance we had. And the fight was on. So these people started to sort of marshal their forces and strategize and talk about what they would do. In the summer of 1982, the trucks were supposed to start bringing dirt to the landfill, and they did. They came to Warren County and lined up on a road, and these protesters, with their signs um, and their anger, really, saw the trucks At that point, the issue became a very emotional one for people who were protecting their town. I don't want this stuff thrown in my water. We're marching because we do not want this to affect our future. Men and women began to lay in the road, in the path of 3,200-pound trucks. What were they thinking when they did that? They were thinking that they just wanted to do anything that they could to stop dirt with cancer-causing chemicals from being dumped in a field near their homes. What did the trucks do when they saw all of these people literally laying themselves on the ground to stop them from passing? The trucks stopped. Um, and the state uh, marshaled its resources, and so the state police arrived, and the state police made a decision to begin removing them. We will not allow one county to become a dump site. The state highway patrol began moving in on the marchers as they approached the entrance to the state landfill. The signs and chants of the protesters made clear their opposition to having the toxic chemical buried in their county. If you do not cease this unlawful act, you will be arrested. The leaders of the protests said they would not move, and they were the first arrested. As they were being escorted away, the crowd moved in on the entrance. Many of the marchers then sat in the road, and the patrol began arresting them and placing them on a jail bus. And over the six-week period of the protests, about 500 people were arrested, including Dolly Burwell, who was arrested at least five times. You know, I went like five times. I wasn't planning on going. It's just the emotion took over me, and I, you know, just tried to stop the trucks. My daughter, who was eight years old at the time, and was arrested and took to juvenile hall. And lots of folks saw her own damn brother uh, crying, saying, 
Uh, I'm not afraid of going to jail, but I'm afraid of what this toxic waste and which prompted a lot of students uh, to come to Warren County from UNC and North Carolina State and people all over the country uh, coming after they saw this little girl. In the black family particularly, you know, if I had an aunt to die and I would hear my mother say to them, well, you gotta be strong. You can't cry in front of somebody because you have to be strong for them. And that's the way I felt. When I got down, you know, I had to think about the ancestors, you know. What I had on my shoulder was not nearly what some of the people before me had on their shoulder. So if all these people were removed by the police and arrested, was the dumping ultimately able to happen? The dumping did happen. The protests delayed the dumping for six weeks. The protest itself was covered nationwide. CBS, ABC, also the Washington Post and the New York Times carried this story. And they did something that they rarely do. They actually covered an environmental protest by people of color, Black people. And that coverage was seen by other activists, other environmental activists in urban centers across the country. And so across the country, people who had similar fights with the states and government agencies that were placing pollution in their communities we're seeing their fights play out on the news from Warren County. And they were looking at that and saying, wow, this is so similar and, and we could be engaged in that type of protest and then morphed in, a little later into the environmental justice movement. It was not just the protests. It was about linking an environmental issue to the violation of people's civil rights and, and, and seeing a poor, predominantly black community being dumped on uh, by, the, by the powerful state of North Carolina is what created the movement. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell me more about the other places where similar forms of activism were taking place during that era. It's all over the country. In Houston, the City Planning Commission had placed five major garbage dumps in African-American communities. 
not just poor African-American communities, but middle-class African-American communities. In Dallas, there are rail yards. In Chicago, there were power plants placed on the edges of communities that were spewing carbon emissions. In Richmond, uh, California, there are also refineries at ports in Los Angeles, New York, and New Jersey. Trucks, tens of thousands of trucks, would wind their way through nearby communities, fouling the air. The corridor between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, there were so many refineries. It has an infamous name, Cancer Alley. And so these types of fights were happening all over the country, and almost always the people being affected were Black, Latino, or indigenous Native Americans. And that's why Warren County was so important. Other people were fighting just as they fought in Warren County across the country, but they weren't getting that type of attention. So in the years since then, and since we have developed this this larger idea of environmental justice or environmental racism— Has the government taken significant steps to solve this problem? Most people who call themselves environmental justice advocates would say no. Uh, There was some movement on environmental justice with the establishment of an office of environmental justice at EPA. And then uh, when Clinton was elected, he actually signed an executive order to make this a priority. The problem is that nothing came of that. There was really no congressional legislation. There has been very little enforcement or penalties against companies that pollute the air or soil water in these communities. And so there's a lot of federal talk, but little federal action. So much so that the EPA criticized itself at one point and said it's not doing enough on the issue. A key plank of our Build Back Better economy an economic plan, is building a modern climate-resistant infrastructure and a clean energy future. The new president of the United States, Joe Biden, has put environmental justice at the center of his climate agenda and is, in fact, doing things that no other president has done. What are those things? What is he proposing? First of all, his appointments. He has appointed people who were advocates for environmental justice to just major positions. Deb Holland at the Department of the Interior. Driven by justice and empowering communities who have shouldered the burdens of environmental negligence. Brenda Mallory, the director of the Council of Environmental Quality. I know the faces of the marginalized, and I appreciate the challenges of urban pollution. Michael Regan. There was one place in particular that I wanted to work, the EPA. When President-elect Biden called out the plight of the fence line communities during the campaign, he made it clear that we would no longer just deal with the issues up to the fence line of these facilities. President Biden recently appointed two dozen environmental justice advocates as, a, as a, an advisory panel for his administration to help uh, with these issues. And so he has put in place an actual team 
to do something about this issue. So in addition to these pretty significant appointments and what they represent, what are the actual ways that he intends to change how the government does things, like what people are experiencing in these communities that have historically been polluted? Like, what can he actually change and how quickly can he change it? What he has promised to do is to devote 40 percent of all his investments in the new climate infrastructure to these communities, to communities that need this type of help, to black, brown, and uh, native communities. And no other president has said that he would do this. How this will manifest is something that we'll be reporting on to see if he fulfills these promises. But that's some promise. It, a, a trillion dollar uh, clean energy plan and 40% of infrastructure of that related to climate issues going to these communities. That's a big deal. Whether you can fix a legacy of pollution around these communities in one presidential term, that doesn't seem feasible. It doesn't seem possible. The only thing you can do is start to work on that problem. And frankly, it feels like this history is really instructive for the future, that as we as a country are are making huge decisions about what the future will look like and how we will respond to the, uh, the magnitude of the threat of climate change, that we have to understand who are the people who are going to be worst affected, which it seems has always been and will always be people of color, but also who are the voices that we're going to listen to and that historically we haven't done a good job of listening to those voices. Right. And I think that this may be a moment where we began, at least in this country, to listen to those voices. I think that not only the Biden administration is listening to these voices, but conservation groups that are just basically overwhelmingly white and have led the agenda are now listening to these voices. So then it seems like there's kind of an intractable problem here because it's not like these industries that produce these byproducts or pollutants, like it's not like they're going to go away and you have to put this stuff somewhere. So what is the actual solution for how to do that in a way that's less harmful? That is the million dollar question. You know, how are you going to cite uh, these uh, pollution sources moving forward into the future. Where are you going to put them? Will you begin to have an equal share of power plants and sewage wastewater treatment facilities next to upper-class white homes? These are going to be questions moving forward and battles moving forward. As for the PCB dump in Warren County, it sat there for years. Then water started to collect in the landfill. When we found out that water had built up in the landfill and the state's remedy for that was to take the contaminated water out and take it to another community, Warren County rose up and said, no, this is not environmental justice. Environmental justice do not mean taking it out of our community and putting it in another poor, predominantly Black community. 
Dolly and her neighbors kept agitating, and they convinced the state not to expand the landfill or take the contaminated water to another community. Instead, state and federal authorities spent millions of dollars to clean up the dump. And in 2004, the government declared it to be clean. So that that gave me confirmation that a movement was birthed in Warren County, but that a whole education process about what environmental justice was was also birthed. I, I believe that Warren County had led people to not only fight for environmental justice, but for political and economic um, justice as well. Daryl Fears covers the environment for The Post. The story was produced by Bishop Sand and edited by Robin Amer. Brady Dennis contributed reporting. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svarnovsky are associate producers, and Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.